So I'm going to try to give a uh, great lecture today. There's three types of lectures. There's a good lecture, a great lecture, and the best lecture. I won't be giving you guys the best lecture, but I'm going to go for the great. Um, the good lecture is one that ends on time. A great lecture is one that ends early. And the best lecture is canceled. <laughs> but I'm here, so you're not going to get the best, but we're try to, I'll try to give you a great one. All right, so I'm going to talk about um, ways that you guys can help us give you the best diagnosis. And what you don't want to happen is for your dermatopathologist to narrow it down to 16 possibilities. That doesn't help you, right? So there's some things that you can do to help us give you uh, the best diagnosis, and that's kind of what we're going to talk about. So I'm just going to briefly go over how we process a biopsy, because I think that's helpful for you guys to know. Because sometimes, you know, someone will take a biopsy, we'll get it in our lab that afternoon, and then we'll get a phone call that afternoon, and they want to know, know the results. Well, people, I think it's really a good idea for you guys to understand how it's processed so that you can have a timeline for yourself and to give your patients so that you know when to expect your biopsy results. I'm also going to go over problems that we face and reasons that your reports may be delayed, and then things that you can do to help us. And included in that are what types of biopsies to take when. And then it's over. So you guys see a patient, and <clears throat> you'll see these. For example, this patient has these you know, plaques on her buttock. So that's what you see. So then the next step you do is you decide you need a biopsy. So you take a biopsy, you put it in your little formalin container, and you fill out your requisition and send it to us or your dermatopathologist. So what happens when we get the biopsy? The first thing that happens is that we, we accession it, which means that we give it a number. We assign a number to every biopsy so that we can follow it all the way through. A lot of times if you call about a case, we'll ask you, well, what's the number on the report just so that it helps us follow the case through. But it'll get a number, and then it goes back to the gross room, and what you can see here, there's the specimen, here's the biopsy, here's the formalin containers, we have these little cassettes, there's a ruler, a scalpel, and that's one of our PAs, a, a pathology PA, and so she measures it, and she dictates a description on it. She describes it, describes the lesion, she measures it, and then she inks it a lot of times. If you're looking for margins, we, we ink it so that we can tell exactly where the margins are, and then she cuts it up, and puts it in this little purple cassette. Then once it's, then it gets processed overnight. So once it gets into that, that it gets dictated and described and cut up and put in cassette, it, it has to get processed overnight in numerous chemicals to fix the tissue. So then the next morning, this is one of my partners actually, so we take the tissue, people in histology usually are, are histotechs, but sometimes we do it ourselves take out the tissue from the cassette, and we embed it in, in paraffin wax. And that's what he's doing here, is using forceps and, and taking that tissue and putting it in paraffin wax. And then that tissue makes a, a, a block of wax. Then that, that tissue that's in the wax gets cut, and that's what the, in, by a little micro, a microtome that cuts really thin sections. This is thin sections of the tissue, we put it in a water bath and then scoop it out of the water bath, put it on a slide. So the tissue's on the slide right now, but then we have to stain it so we can see it, and that's what this is. This is a stainer. 
that uses various staining um, chemicals, but the two main ones are hematoxylin and eosin. The hematoxylin's uh, purple and the eosin's pink. And once it goes through the stainer, this is what we get. And then it comes to me. They bring me the slides and then we make a diagnosis. And if you remembered on the first picture, that was mycosis fungoides. And that's what this is here. So this correlates to mycosis fungoides. So I have a nice biopsy where I have epidermis here and dermis, and, and I have changes in mycosis fungoides, the lymphocytes up here in the epidermis and the dermis. So that's just the overall picture of how biopsies get processed. So now we're going to move on to problems we face. And you're going to kind of see a recurring theme because I have two big complaints, I think, that makes it you know, really difficult to make a good diagnosis, and it's things that you can help us, and sometimes you can give us the most beautiful, perfect biopsy in the world, and we still can't make a diagnosis, but um, the, the, one of the biggest problems we face is that the tissue is insufficient. We just don't have enough tissue. And also biopsy technique issues, I'll go over that. And the other big thing from not enough tissue is not enough history. And I know you guys are busy. I know you can't, you know, write a book for every single, you know, biopsy that you do. But if you can just give some really brief pertinence, that would really save a lot of time and time for us calling your office to say, hey, is this a rash or is it a neoplasm? You know, just something simple like that. Sometimes I don't know if you're looking for a solitary lesion or a rash. And if you can even give me, you know, that history, that's really helpful. And then uh, a lot of times it's just difficult for us. This doesn't really have anything to do with you guys, but obtaining prior biopsies from our reports from outside labs. So if I have an excision that the biopsy was done elsewhere, sometimes that can just be difficult in obtaining a prior history or prior uh, report. So this is a biopsy I got. That's it. You know, I mean, and, and this is on high power. I cannot make a diagnosis on that. So I just, you know, that's a, that's a big problem I face is not enough tissue. This is a technique issue. Here's a punch biopsy, but it got squished with the forceps. So when, they, when someone took the biopsy and took the, the uh, punch biopsy out, they squished it with their forceps, and then that causes this little squashed part right here, which just makes it harder for me to read. And then this is what happens whenever you cauterize something. And so this is just, the, the epidermis is supposed to be up here, but it's completely fried off. And it just looks all burnt up here. And, and you know, there's great times for cauterizing things and taking a biopsy, and I understand that, and it's, it's fine, except if you're looking for something in the epidermis, like if you're re-excising a melanoma in situ, don't do that. Because it's, I'm not gonna be able to tell you that there's melanoma in situ there, because it's fried. This is a double whammy because someone squashed it with the forceps and cauterized it. So I'm not really sure what's going on with this thing because, you know, double whammy here. And then this is a curatage biopsy. And um, we, get, we get a fair amount of these. And actually, most of the time, while they're more difficult to read, I can, you know, we can make a diagnosis on them and it's no problem. But just like, for instance, this is all I got, but this little piece here is basal cell carcinoma. So I can say that this is a basal cell, but it just makes it a little more difficult whenever it's a curatage as opposed to a shave. And then be careful whenever you're putting the tissue into the container that it goes all the way into the formalin because oftentimes we'll get where the tissue gets on the rim of the lid and they close the lid. 
And then this is what happens, that you get this squashed area because whenever we take it out, the you know, tissue's been folded over and squashed and in between the container and the lid. Um, and this is a Neva, so it's, you know, it's okay, but still, just try to be careful to get it all the way in there. And then this is um, another big thing, like we're gonna kind of go over some examples of the history stuff, but um, for instance, this is a lichenoid reaction pattern. So there's lymphocytes obscuring the dermal epidermal junction and, and keratinocytes are being picked off, they're being killed right here. But it really makes a difference. This pattern can be seen in a rash and in a solitary lesion. So if you tell me that this is a rash and, this is, and that's the histology I see, if you have this, then I can tell you it's lichen planus. But if you tell me that you're looking for a solitary lesion, rule out basal cell, and I see that exact same slide, then I can tell you it's a lichenoid keratosis. So a lot of times the histology is very similar for rashes versus neoplasms, and it's just very helpful to know which one you're, you're looking for. And then if, any kind of prior treatment, which includes cryo. So if, if you know, you've tried treating an AK before and you've you know, used cryo on it and it just isn't going away, so you wanna make sure there's not you know, an invasive squame underneath there, it's really helpful for us to know that there's been cryo there before. Like for instance, this is a, a scar, it's, it's a pretty dense scar. So if I didn't know anything about this patient and I saw this really dense scar, one of the things I have to worry about is desmoplastic melanoma because desmoplastic melanoma looks like a scar. And so, you know, I might spend all this time doing stains and, you know, looking for desmoplastic melanoma whenever the easy answer is this area's already had cryo to it and that's just a scar. So that's helpful information to know. And then this is um, a big thing that I end up usually calling about is I'll, I'll see a scar, especially in a melanocytic lesion, and I'll wanna know if there's been a prior biopsy there before. Because again, desmoplastic melanoma is something that I don't wanna miss and you guys don't wanna miss either, but I have to worry about it whenever I see something that looks like a scar in the field. And if there's been no prior biopsy from that site, then I really have to worry about it. If there's been a prior biopsy, then it explains why the scar is there. Not only that, recurrent persistent nevi. So if you just have a regular run-of-the-mill nevus and you, know, you did a partial biopsy of it and then five years later, you, know, you see pigmented in that area again, so you re-biopsy it, those, those nevi that you know, persist or recur can mimic melanoma. So if we don't know that it's been biopsied before, we see something like this and go, ah, this is melanoma, oh my gosh, this looks horrible. So like these are nests of melanocytes along the dermoepidermal junction in the epidermis and they're, they're confluent. This is a pattern that you would see in melanoma. But then we have this scar down here. So for me, is this desmoplastic melanoma or is this a recurrent persistent nevus? I'm not sure. I, I did have this little part down here. These little guys here are melanocytes that are, this is a hair follicle. These are tracking down a hair follicle. Those look like neva cells. And, and the fact that it tracks down a hair follicle is common in, in nevi. So this is reassuring that maybe this part is actually not melanoma, but maybe it's all recurrent persistent nevus. But unless I have history, I'm not gonna be sure. So I did a stain on it. This is a melanase stain, which stains melanocytes. And I see this confluence, confluent pattern of melanocytes. This is a pattern you see in melanoma. 
So if I just had this, I would call it melanoma in situ because that's what it looks like. But again, I had these guys that look like nevus cells down here, so it makes you wonder, has this been biopsied before? And whenever I called and got history, they said, oh yeah, it has been biopsied before, and this is the biopsy number. And so they gave me the case number, I pulled the case, and this was the prior biopsy. This is a nevus, no doubt about it. This is a nevus. So now I can be reassured and call the, the, the prior case a recurrent persistent nevus and not melanoma. But without having known that this was the lesion there before, I might miscall it and call it melanoma. But with that history, I can say, oh no, this is just a recurrent persistent nevus and you, know, you don't need to do anything else to it. Okay, and this is another thing. I know sometimes maybe little things in their history you know, doesn't, maybe doesn't mean a whole lot or you don't think they would mean a whole lot, but if, if there's anything that you think could be pertinent, it would be really good to add that to the history. This is a case that is a nevus, and it looks like a nevus. It's the, these are melanocytes in the dermis, and they're kind of going down along these hair follicles, kind of like that pattern I showed you before. So these are all reassuring signs for a nevus. But then I see that guy. That's a mitotic figure. So once I see a mitotic figure, I have to worry about melanoma. And, but I looked at the history, and she was a 26-year-old female. So I thought, hmm, 26-year-old female, could she be pregnant? And I called the office, oh yeah, she's pregnant. So, and, and that's just what, in, in pregnancy, you can get some mitotic figures in nevi, and it's okay. It's, it doesn't mean that it's melanoma. So without that history of her being pregnant, it's really hard to, you know, I might have worried a lot more about this and it may have led to me asking you guys to re-excise it and her getting an unnecessary re-excision, you know, without that additional bit of information. Okay, any, again, any prior treatment is always good to know. This is a case that um, the history, this woman was 38 and the history I got was um, cyst versus scar. And so I see this big scar here. This all is scar down here. But then I see these things. And I thought, what in the world are those? That's foreign material. That's not anything that is intrinsic to the human body. This is foreign material, and these are multinucleated giant cells. Those are foreign body giant cells that are engulfing this foreign material. This is what radius looks like. So these are little microspherules of radius. So I know that this woman has had a filler in her, you know, injected. So whenever I call, I said, hey, has this woman had a filler? Oh, yeah, she, this woman's a picker. She has these really deep scars, and we, you know, in, injected radius to try to help with the scars, which is just another good piece of history for me to know. And if you guys have fillers and then get a biopsy there, I'm going to know. So you can't, can't lie and say you haven't had a filler. <laughs> so I'm going to be able to see it. Okay, this is a really cool case, but it really highlights about giving me even pertinent past medical history, not just the current, but past medical history. This case, um, we got this as a consult. We got it as a, a consult, and, and the um, person who sent the consult thought that this could be an anexal tumor, and so that's why they sent it to us. They, uh, they said, rule out clear cell hydradenoma, an anexal tumor. Okay, so we get it, and we'll look at it and think, this looks like parathyroid tissue. But the history we get is it's a 38-year-old woman with the left forearm mass. That's it, left forearm mass. 
I thought, it's really bizarre. It looks like parathyroid tissue for all the world. So we call. Oh yeah, this woman has end-stage renal disease. She has tertiary hyperparathyroidism, had a parathyroidectomy three years ago, had autotransplantation of a parathyroid into her uh, forearm. And then three years later, where she had the autotransplant started growing. And that's what it was. She had hyperplastic parathyroid tissue from her forearm. But I mean, and we actually published this case because it was just so, so interesting. But I mean, that was just such a, you know, the only history we got was 38 year old with a left forearm mass. It's like, well, if you would have told me all this really pertinent history, you know, it would have been a lot easier, but um, cool case nonetheless. Okay, and then any pertinent medication history, again, you don't have to like put a list of like every single, you know, medication that they're on, but, but just big ones that you think could be related to the rash they had. For instance, this woman um, had a history of breast cancer, and she has, a, she has a rash and a history of breast cancer. And these changes in the epidermis, they, these really big, ugly cells along the dermoepidermal junction, kind of look like an actinic keratosis, but almost too ugly for that. That's what you get in chemotherapy. So that's, you can, when you, oftentimes when you get a chemotherapy rash, this is what it looks like. It just makes your keratinocytes look really awful. And whenever we called and found out this woman was um, currently on Taxol for treatment of breast cancer. So that explained this really ugliness that we would see in her biopsy. And then this one, this is a biopsy from uh, the foot over the metacarpal joint. And um, I saw this thing, that the, the history was um, inflammation versus neoplasm. That's the, that was the differential I had. Well, I saw the, the epidermis and everything down to the deep dermis is normal, but I saw this thing in the deep dermis, and I thought, hmm, what's that? That's steroid. So someone had injected steroid in that site, and that's, that's what I was seeing. So again, if, that's, you know, if they've had a steroid injection directly where you're biopsying, that's a good piece of information for us to know. And so this is a frustrating part for you guys when your reports are delayed, right? Because you guys have the patient calling you and they're worried and, you know, and then it's difficult because you have to deal with, you know, the, whenever they're very worried and you're like, what is going on? Why don't we have the report? It's been a week. And so I'm just going to kind of go over some reasons that your reports may be delayed. Most of the time, almost all the time when the reports are delayed, it's because they're difficult cases and more needs to be done to it. So it's not just we, you know, look at the slide the next day, oh, it's a nevus, and that's it. A lot of times if, boy, you really think it's melanoma, or oh, I'm not sure about this rash, or oh, maybe this could be a fungus. So you have, we'll have to do stains to help narrow down our differential and, and give you a diagnosis, and that takes time. Nail softening, so whenever you guys take clippings to, to rule out onychomycosis, those, um, actually the nail clippings, we put them in nair, of all things, the, you know, what women use to like, you know, hair, remove hair off of your legs. That softens the nail, but it has to be in nair for a couple days to soften the nail in order for us to be able to cut it, because if we just tried to cut the nail without softening it, the nail would shatter and we wouldn't be able to make a slide out of it. So that'll, That'll delay it because that has to soften for a few days. 
Um, one of the other things, like I said, if I have an excision and the prior biopsy was done somewhere, like a melanocytic thing, and, and I see a residual weird melanocytic thing, and oh, has this been biopsy before? Yes, it has. The biopsy, you know, was seen in Florida or whatever. And so then I want to see that prior biopsy to make sure that that one was a nevus so that my current excision is a recurrent persistent nevus or maybe it's melanoma, but I want to see that prior biopsy. So a lot of times if I'm waiting for an outside, you know, slides, report or whatever, that'll, that'll delay it and that'll take time. Um, and then a lot of times we'll be annoying and call your office and ask for, you know, history and so that'll just take time. Because um, a lot of times the patients have to be called. Some of, the, some of the questions we're asking, you know, maybe it's not right in the chart and so that'll just take time and delay the report. And then internal consult, um, every single day, I work with um, three other dermatopathologists, and every single day we show each other stuff. And you know, our, um, you know, our oldest guy has been doing dermatopathology for 35 years, and he still so shows stuff every day. And so it's just a lot of times it's it's delayed because it's a difficult case, and we're showing it around to each other and trying to get multiple opinions and you know figure out what the what the diagnosis is. And then technical problems include just like stuff from our end of the things that that we don't like to happen, but they just happen every day. And you know, sometimes in just normal doing biopsies, for instance, whenever they section the tissue, it gets folded. And so then I can't see the epidermis because the epidermis is folded over. So I send it back and tell them that I can't see the epidermis, it's folded. You need to give me a, you know, a piece that isn't folded. Or I order a stain and the stain doesn't work. So then I have to send it back and, and get a stain. So those, those are infrequent, but that can delay the report. So an example of, of a stain, whenever I have to get a stain and that can delay it. This is a case, see this thing looks like a scar here. I've showed you a bunch of scars, but this thing looks like a scar. However, there's these melanocytes that are, just a few of them that are up here at the dermal epidermal junction, so I told you I gotta worry about desmoplastic melanoma in these sorts of cases. So I order stains to make sure it's not desmoplastic melanoma. Desmoplastic melanoma is an odd melanoma for us in the, in the sense that the normal, uh, normal melanomas will stain for all three, these are all three markers for melanocytes. Normal melanomas will stain for all three. If I just had a nodular melanoma, it would stain for melanin A, HMB45, and S100. Desmoplastic melanoma will only stain for S100. It's not going to stain for HMB45 and melanin A. So I have to do multiple stains on this to, to rule out or rule in desmoplastic melanoma, and in this case, these are negative, but the S100 is strongly positive, so this is a case of desmoplastic melanoma. Okay, special stains include stains for like fungus, uh, stains for melanin pigment, stains for iron pigment. Um, this is a stain for mucopolysaccharides. This is called an Alcian blue, and it stains mucopolysaccharides. This is a filler. This is Restylane, and these little um, kind of basophilic areas here, that's the Restylane, that'll stain with the Alcian Blue, so that I can prove that it's Restylane by doing an Alcian Blue stain, but again, that would delay your report today because I ordered that stain. This is a nail, so this is a nail plate here, and it's not all shattered in pieces because we um, fixed it in air for a couple days, 
But those, whenever you're looking for fungus, I have to do a stain that stains fungus because here's just an H&E stain. You can't see the fungus on the H&E stain. But whenever I do this PAS stain for fungus, all these little squiggly linear things here, those are all dermatophytes. Those are all hyphae. They're all hyphae in there. So I can say this is dermatophytosis. Okay, so throw us a lifeline, huh? What can you do to help us? So the, the biggest things are history, history, history. Um, and fill out your requisition completely and sufficient amount of tissue. So here's a good example, and it's not a book, so again, I know you guys are busy, I know, you know, it's, you have lots of patients, and I'm not expecting a book for every single um, biopsy that you do, but, but here's just a really great history. It's short, white male with a one centimeter, black, pink, thin plaque, melanoma versus atypical nevus. That's all I need. I, I love that they gave the, the size, because Sometimes if they if they give they say oh it's three millimeters and you know it looks a little funny I think oh well you know it, maybe it's could, because it's traumatized or whatever but if I see I they tell me it's one centimeter over and it looks a little funny I think and it's a small biopsy sometimes I say hey this this looks okay but because it's coming from a one centimeter lesion there may be other areas that don't look like this and maybe in other areas it looks like it is melanoma, and I'm just kind of getting an area that doesn't really look like melanoma, but the whole, you know, in other areas it could be melanoma. And I'll, sometimes I'll recommend to rebiopsy it if you guys are still concerned for melanoma. So giving the size of a lesion does help. This is another um, history that, again, it, there's not much history here, but it's okay. It's, it's enough. And the reason I put it here is because they gave these two, one's lateral cheek, one's medial cheek, and they tell me A and B are from the same lesion. That's awesome, because a lot of times I'll have two things that look similar, or if it's a melanocytic thing, and I think, oh my gosh, is this, you know, is this two melanoma in situs, or is this all the same lesion? But they told me up front that A and B are from the same lesion, so that's really helpful. And then this, I circled this, it's kind of hard to see. This, this says prior biopsy. So, if there's, and I'm, every requisition that you guys, I'm sure that you guys, you know, fill out or whatever has some area in there that says for prior biopsy. That's such a big one for us, especially, you know, if it's a melanocytic thing that, that has been biopsied before, please, please put in yes or no, or if, even better if it's yes, if you have the number of the prior pathology report that corresponds to the prior biopsy, that's like awesome. But just if you always remember to kind of put in prior, you know, just the prior, if there's been a prior biopsy not, that, that's really helpful. Okay, and then things that help us are having more tissue, more tissue. I'm a, I'm a you know, dermatopathologist. I'm always going to say, give me more tissue. <laughs> so if, if we're ever discussing a case and like, oh, do you need more tissue? My answer is always going to be yes, because... <laughs> More tissue is always better for me. And again, you don't have to take some huge excision. You know, this, I'm not asking you to be ridiculous. You don't have to, you know, take some huge biopsy, huge excision for everything. That's not, not what I'm asking. But, but, you know, this is just stratum corneum. I don't even have viable epidermis. I have zero dermis. This is epidermis, but that's it. I don't even have a full thickness epidermis, and I don't have any dermis. And these things are looking for dermal lesions. 
You're looking for a DF, you're looking for a basal cell. Well, if I don't even have dermis, I'm not gonna be able to, you know, exclude those things. Okay, and then what types of biopsies to do when? And I tried to cover um, the things that I thought were m most pertinent. Um, and again, these, you know, you can do all different kinds of types of biopsies and it's fine, but really these are kind of the best things that help us. So for mycosis fungoides, it's really nice to have a long, thin shave because the changes are mostly in the epidermis and in the superficial dermis. So they're not in the deep dermis or in the fat. So if I can get something that gives me the epidermis and the superficial dermis, that's gonna, that's gonna be where your money is. And so that's gonna be the best thing for me when you wanna rule out mycosis fungoides. That's the best type of biopsy for me to have. And then for melanocytic things, I don't care if you punch it or you shave it. It really doesn't matter to me. But if you can get the whole lesion, whatever technique you wanna use is, is the best thing. Again, I understand you can't do an excision for every single melanocytic thing that you see that's not, you know, it's not feasible, you can't do that. But if you have, if there's a way for you to reasonably get the whole lesion, whether you punch it or shave it, I don't care, but if I can get the whole lesion, because when I look at a melanocytic thing, I look at, is it well circumscribed? Is it symmetrical? The architecture to me is very, very important for being able to tell nevus versus melanoma. And so if I can have the whole lesion and assess the whole architecture, that's, that's really the best. And then try to choose lesions in their diagnostic stage. So as far as blistering disorders, anything with blisters, choose an early lesion. Get, get an early lesion for blistering disorders and for vasculitis. That's where the money's gonna be. And then get a later lesion when you're looking for things that'll take a longer time for the histological changes to develop psoriasis, discoid lupus, lichen planus. Get a later lesion. Those, the, that's gonna be where the, the lesions are gonna be more well-developed for me and more classical for me and easier to make the diagnosis. Kind of in the same lines of that, whenever you're doing a direct immunofluorescence, whenever, for most things, because most things are for blistering diseases, that's what most DIFs are, are for, and so, in general, the early lesions are better whenever you're doing direct immunofluorescence. So 24 to 48 hours, if you can get a lesion in that stage, that's the best. Except for discoid lupus. If you're doing a direct immunofluorescence for discoid lupus, I want a late lesion. So as, as late as you can get is, is what I'd like for discoid lupus. Rash, if you're biopsying a rash, usually a punch is better than a shave because most of the time I wanna see both superficial and deep dermis. And so um, usually for, for that reason, a punch is the, be the best thing. And I know these are kind of stupid, but you know, if you're looking for something in the dermis, I need dermis, not just the superficial epidermis. I, I'm gonna have to have dermis. And same for if you're looking for things in fat, anything, any sort of paniculitis. Uh, morphia is another thing that's not a paniculitis, but oftentimes the changes in morphia are at the deep dermal subcutaneous junction. So I have to see that junction. I have to see where the deep dermis meets the subcutis because that's where the changes typically are. So for any sort of paniculitis or morphia, make sure I have fat. And then alopecias, I know I'm getting greedy, but it's really nice if we have two biopsies for alopecias and I know like, no one likes to take out, patients don't like to have their scalp biopsied, you guys don't like to do, I mean, there's nothing, no one wins <laughs> scalp biopsies. They're hard to diagnose, 
So I know it's really hard to talk your patients into like doing two punch biopsies, but if you can, it's really nice because we section, section them differently. One is sectioned vertically, and I'll show you this, and one sectioned horizontally, and those help. But if you can't get two, that's fine. At least do a four millimeter punch, at least, at least that thick, because if you do a two millimeter, it's just too thin, and I don't have enough hair follicles to really assess for what you guys are looking for. So it, you know, if you can only get one, get me a, a four millimeter. And also, I need fat, and I think, um, I don't know that we emphasize that enough, but the bulbs, the hair bulbs are in the fat, and especially for alopecia areata, the, the change in alopecia areata is in the bulb. There's inflammation in the hair bulb, and that's how I diagnose alopecia areata. And if I don't have bulbs, I can't, I can't diagnose alopecia areata. So just be aware that it's good to, whenever you're taking those scalp biopsies, to try to get fat in there too. And then whenever you're doing a rash, try to biopsy a primary lesion and not one that's been scratched or ulcerated. And I know sometimes that's hard, especially in you know, really itchy rashes because it seems like every area that they have a lesion, the patient is manipulated. But if you can find one that they haven't manipulated, because the problem comes that we'll all, the overriding thing we see is an ulcer or you know, changes of lichen simplex chronicus. And then I don't, you know, and that's really the predominant finding. So I'm not really sure what the underlying rash is. All I'm seeing is the secondary changes. So if you can get one untouched, that's, that's the best. Um, for mast cell disease and vitiligo, especially mast cell disease, um, if you can get me a biopsy of uninvolved skin plus lesional skin, two different biopsies, one lesion, one non-lesion, because mast cell disorders can be, it's so hard to tell, is there more mast cells than there should be? I don't know. There's, you know, there's no really good number for a dermatopathologist pathologist where it's not like you can count mast cells and go, oh, there's, you know, 17, that's too many. So if we can compare it to what normal mast cells are in their skin compared to lesional, then we can tell you, hey, yeah, this could be Tmap. So if, if when you're, those things are in your differential, if you can get non-lesional skin plus lesional skin, that's most helpful. And then ideally one specimen per container. And I know like when you do acrocortones, you throw them all in one container and that's fine. Like, you know, I get it and, and that's not a problem. But you know, just the other day I had a case where they thought they were SEBs and they threw like three SEBs into one container and one was a Bowens. Well, now you have squamous cell carcinoma in situ and two seborrheic keratoses. Well, you know, it's not my problem, but it's gonna be a problem for you guys as to where did that Bowens come from? Cause you're gonna have to do something else to that one. But if you don't know, you know, I'm not gonna be able to tell where, what site is from where and so you know, that just, that can be a problem. So I understand certain situations, acrocortones, and that, that's, that's okay, but just be careful about putting more than one specimen in one container because it can get you guys in a bind. And then this is like one of my big things. If it doesn't make sense, if my diagnosis does not correlate with what you guys are seeing, please call. Like we are always, always available and, and welcome phone calls because that is, I mean, that's sometimes better than any special stain, any immuno stain, any recut. Just calling and discussing the case really helps us. So if you, you know, get your report and you're like, this just doesn't make sense, please call. 
that you know we I, we'd love to discuss the case and try to come up with a you know reevaluate re it and you know see see it look at it in a different light. So this is just an example. I told you from mycosis fungoides, long thin shave. That's what this is. So this is a long thin shave. And I showed you the punch of the beating, which is mycosis fungoides, which is fine. You know, I could make the diagnosis of mycosis fungoides. I just didn't need any of that deep dermis or subcutis. All I need is this, because the changes are all in the superficial dermis and in the epidermis up here. So if I if I have the epidermis and the superficial dermis, that's where the money's gonna be for me. And so Long, thin shave is, is good for mycosis fungoides. And then in nevus, so anything, like I said, that can, if you can, that can get me the whole lesion. This is a shave for a nevus. Here's the nevus. It starts here and it stops there. I have the whole thing, whole thing, and here's just a higher power to show you. Starts here, stops here. I can definitively say that this is nevus, but Part of the reason is because I have the whole lesion and I can assess symmetry, circumscription. Architecture is very important for me in, in nevus versus melanoma. Here's a punch and here's, this is a blue nevus. This little nodule right here of these dendritic melanocytes, that's what a blue nevus looks like. But I have the whole thing. So is it blue nevus like melanoma? No, it's not because I have the whole thing. I can look at it and tell you that it's a blue nevus. So, Punch or shave, I really don't care, but if you can get the whole lesion, that's the best thing. So if melanoma is in your differential, please don't do a curatage. <laughs> this is a case of a curatage, rut row, right, where they had seb versus melanoma, and it's melanoma. <laughs> so, and this is a melanase stain that, like, all those melanocytes, psh, way too many. That thing is totally melanoma. But I can't give a Breslow depth now because I have this shave and I don't know if it's invasive or not. So if that's in your differential, please don't do a curatage. <laughs> okay, so um, I was saying early lesions, whenever things to biopsy for early, blisters, this is bullous pemphigoid. So here's, you can see the blister here. The, ep the epidermis is lifting off from the dermis here. And then in this dermal cavity is eosinophils. So that's bullous pemphigoid. That's an early lesion, and it's like so classical. I could publish it in a book. It's, it's awesome. It's a really good example of bullous pemphigoid. And then this is vasculitis. So the changes are histologically are early, and so you can see this fibrinoid necrosis around the blood vessel walls and these neutrophils all in here. So vasculitis and, and blistering it's, the disorders, early lesions are better. Late lesions, lichen planus, very helpful for late DLE because those changes take a long time to develop in psoriasis. So all of these you want more of a later lesion rather than a, than a very early lesion. Okay, direct immunofluorescence, because I said most of them are for blistering things. So you want more of the early lesions, 24 to 48 hours, whenever you're looking for blistering things, doing a direct immunofluorescence. This is pemphigus, and this is Here's the epidermis, and there's these acantholiasis or breaking apart. The keratinocytes are separating and breaking apart from each other. That's the classical picture of pemphigus on H&E. And then on the direct immunofluorescence, this is IgG, it has these intercellular, these little web-like around each keratinocyte. That's the, that's the classical pattern for pemphigus. But if you're doing a direct immunofluorescence for lupus, for for discoid lupus, 
because those changes histologically take a while to develop, and it's best to have a later lesion. And like one of the classical things for me for lupus is this, see this really pink corrugated membrane right here underneath the, underneath the dermal, underneath the epidermis? That's a thickened basement membrane, and that takes a while to develop. But when I see that, it's really classical, well, for lupus and dermatomyositis, kind of a, a connective tissue disorder. So having a late, later lesion is better. And this is uh, IgG. This is immunoglobulin. But you get IgG and IgM and IgA. You get all a, a mixed pattern of immunoglobulins along that, base, that thickened basement membrane. But that's the pattern that you see on lupus. And then I said for um, a rash, having a punch is really nice. It's a really nice punch and includes subcutis. And even though, for instance, this, this dermatosis doesn't, you know, the, the deep dermis and subcutis are totally normal, it's still helpful to see that. It's still helpful to see, hey, the changes are just going on in the superficial dermis. There's nothing going on in the deep dermis or subcutis. And so that narrows, right there, that narrows the differential for me to know that the changes are just confined up here. And there's like 5 billion eosinophils up here. So this is probably a drug reaction or some sort of hypersensitive contact or some sort of hypersensitivity. But it's, you know, like for instance, a bite. Whenever you have, you see a bunch of, tons of eosinophils in a bite. But in an arthropod bite, there, there'll be clusters of eosinophils all the way down in the deep dermis. Whereas a drug stays just in the superficial dermis. So for me, it's very helpful to have deep dermis whenever you're going for a rash because, like I said, certain things involve the deep dermis or just a superficial dermis, and that's helpful. Okay, again, dermal lesion. This is too superficial. If you want something in the dermis, I have to have dermis. And th this is just epidermis and stratum corneum. This is the same thing, epidermis and no, no dermis. So be sure if you're looking for something in the dermis to give me dermis. Ah! <laughs> I get those, and it's like, roll out DF. Ah, that's what I want to do, is just. And then here's erythema nodosum. That's a paniculitis, right? So the changes are, you're looking for stuff in the fat. You're looking for paniculitis. So I have a nice punch biopsy, except that's the base. I don't have any fat. So, and my differential is real at EN. Well, I can't, because I don't have any fat. Even though it's a nice long punch, the diagnostic part of what I'm looking for is not there. So if I don't have fat, I can't, you know, rule out EN for you. Frustrating, right? So these are examples of good punch biopsies with fat whenever you're looking for things like lupus. So the changes for lupus aren't in the fat unless it's lupus paniculitis. If it's lupus paniculitis, then I, you know, I, the changes are in the fat. But like, this is just DLE. But you can see how it's in the superficial and deep dermis. So for me, the fact that they give me this nice big punch that includes fat, I can see that it's the superficial and deep dermis, and that helps me make the diagnosis. This is morphia. Remember I told you that a lot of times at the, the dermal sub-Q junction is where the changes are? This is pretty much normal dermis up here, but then kind of from here on down, this is a big vessel, so someone was bleeding after they took this biopsy. But this was, this all is really sclerotic, eosinophilic sclerosis, and that's what you see in morphia. And see how it goes all the way, here's this, the, the fat right here, and that, the, it kind of starts deep dermis and goes at that junction, and then we have inflammation, which includes plasma cells at the junction. Those are all features that I 
need to see to make the diagnosis of morphia. So this is like an excellent biopsy for morphia. And then this is an excellent biopsy for lipodermatosclerosis. I just picked one paniculitis, um, but you know, the changes for lipodermatosclerosis are in the fat. So, you know, like here's epidermis and this deep, superficial and deep dermis, completely normal. So if I had a biopsy that cut off here, I would, you know, not be able to tell you if it's lipodermatosclerosis or not. It, everything looks normal, but because I have this beautiful biopsy, and I realize like people with lipodermatosclerosis have venous insufficiency and then their biopsy site doesn't heal and it, it all becomes an issue, but if you have to make the diagnosis, I gotta have, you know, you gotta give the tissue to make the right diagnosis. So, uh, you know, you gotta give fat if, if you're looking for lipodermatosclerosis. And as you can see, all the changes are in the fat. So this is like a beautiful biopsy for lipodermatosclerosis. Yay! I see these biopsies and I'm all excited. And then here's for alopecia. So again, if I can have one vertical and one horizontal, that's the best case scenario. If you can only do one, we're gonna, we're gonna section it horizontally. But I wanted to show you how when we get two, we do one vertical and one horizontal because they give us different perspectives on the hair follicles. So it's, it's really nice to have that when we can have it. And then the other thing I was telling you about alopecias is fat. This is the bulb. Bulb right here, bulb right there, bulb right there. So if you don't give me fat, if you just cut it off right there, I, don't, I can't see this deep portion of the hair follicle that sits in the fat. And especially for alopecia areata, it's, it's, you know, that's the place that's diagnostic is, is in the bulb here. So I have to be able to see the bulb. So just, you know, when you're doing those, try to make sure that you can get some fat in there so I can see the bulbs. Okay, and this is an example of um, an ulcerated lesion that was biopsied and a lesion that was scratched, a lichenified lesion. So someone had the fastest fingers in the West and scratching, scratching, scratching that they're itchy rash, but the problem is all I see is, is lichen simplex chronicus. You know, there's this serum crust here, so someone, I, I mean, I know someone's been going to town scratching this thing, but I don't really know if this is a spongiotic dermatitis. I, you know, I really can't tell much else. All I can see is that someone's been scratching it. And the same sort of thing here. There's like a minuscule little piece of intact epidermis right there, but the rest of the epidermis is totally gone because it's ulcerated off. So then I don't know what the underlying, you know, what the underlying dermatosis is because the only thing I really see is an ulcer. And I know it's frustrating for you guys to get a report back that's like ulcer or reactive changes, you know, when you're looking for a rash. And I know you're like, oh, thanks, that's really helpful. <laughs> I know it's not helpful, but, you know, it's, it's really hard whenever, you know, this is all I can see. So if there's any way, and I, and I realize, again, a lot of times, you know, patients have touched every single lesion and you, you can't get one that's not been manipulated. But if you can, that's gonna be the best bet. Now, I don't, I don't um, always need a, really, I don't usually need a, a two biopsies for morphia, and I never ask for that. But someone submitted two biopsies for morphia. They did normal skin and lesional skin. And I just want to show this slide because we put them on the same slide and it's really awesome. These two, they're both bisected. It's a punch biopsy, both got bisected. The, the two together, that's completely normal. And then the two on the end, that's morphia. And I'm sure you guys can see even that there's a big difference between the way, you know, these guys are real fat, they're wedge-shaped, they're real pink, and these guys kind of have spaces in between. They're not as pink, they're thinner. So, 
I mean, you can tell that one's, more, one's lesion and one's not lesion. Here's a higher power. That's normal. That's morphia. Even though I don't have a dermal sub-Q junction, I don't have it here, I can still make the diagnosis of morphia. It's just, and again, you don't need to do normal skin for morphia. I just put it in because it's a really beautiful slide, and it, it shows you how, in certain instances, it can be helpful. Like this, vitiligo. This is a biopsy of normal skin and lesional skin. So if you look at normal skin versus lesional skin, they look the same for me. So, you know, if I just had this, it looks the same as normal skin, so I'm not really going to be able to say whether it's vitiligo or not. Unfortunately, I didn't pick a very good one where the stain didn't show up very well, but this has a melanase stain. The melanase stains in red, the melanase stains for melanocytes. And you can see there's a red guy, there's a red guy, there's a red guy, there's a red guy, one here, one here. Those are all melanocytes. So there's about, on average, you're supposed to have uh, one melanocyte to every seven keratinocytes in the epidermis. And so that looks normal. But this is a melanase stain too, and there's not a single melanocyte, not one. So I can look at this and go, okay, in their normal skin, they have the appropriate ratio of melanocytes to keratinocytes, and they have melanocytes, but then in the lesion, they have zero melanocytes. So it's not that my stain didn't work, it's that this person has absolutely no melanocytes and they have vitiligo. So it's very helpful whenever you have a comparison with normal. And then more than vitiligo, mastocytosis is probably where a normal with a lesion helps me the most. This is normal, this is lesion. Again, if, if you're just looking at the, at the H and E stain section, just your normal, without any stain, these look the same. I mean, this does not look like mastocytosis. I mean, I, you know, to me, if I just looked at it, I'd be like, mm, normal skin. I don't really see a whole lot. It doesn't look like anything, and it looks like the normal skin. However, whenever we do a stain for mast cells, this is a leader stain, and it stains mast cells. So here's this biopsy with the leader stain. These little kind of fuchsia-looking guys, those are mast cells. There's just, you know, a few around the blood vessels in the superficial dermis, and that's it. That, but this is the lesion, so this corresponds to that. And look at all those mast cells. There's a ton of them compared to this. So because I can compare the lesion to normal skin, I can say that this person has mastocytosis. So that's where this becomes very helpful, because if I just had, even if I just had this and I did a stain, I'd be like, it looks like a, you know, it looks like too many, but... How many is too many? I'm not really that sure. But whenever I can compare it to normal skin, then I can say, yeah, that's definitely way too many as compared to normal skin. So that's, that's helpful in those instances. And then again, this is a, a big thing. Please don't, I mean, don't be afraid to call us. Please call us. If you get a report and it just doesn't make any, you know, it just doesn't correlate with what you guys are seeing, call. Let's, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, that's like one of the biggest things is just, you know, Call us, and we're, we're happy to discuss, you know, the cases and try to work through things. Or, and sometimes you just need to keep biopsying, and that's another thing. Sometimes you just don't, you know, it, it's just one of those things, like mycosis from goides is a classical thing. You know, how many times do you guys get a report that's like, mm, well, it looks like sponge germ, but there's these couple of things, and maybe it could, you know, it could be mycosis from goides, I don't know. Mycosis from goides histologically takes a long kind of time to get a real good, um, diagnostic, 
you know, a lesion for us. And so a lot of times those people, you just have to follow and keep biopsying. Whenever your suspicion's high, you know, even if I say sponge derm or something, if you're still thinking mycosis from goides, wait, you know, wait, bring them back. And if it's still not changing, biopsy again. There's just certain things you're gonna, you know, have to just keep biopsying. Even though I call it sponge derm, you know, maybe in the biopsy six months later, it has changes that are more characteristic of mycosis fungoides. So if it, if it doesn't make sense or you're still, it's still in your differential, keep biopsying or call. Um, here's an example of a case I had that he wanted um, bolus pemphigoid versus pemphigus. So they wanted a blistering disorder. So this was the H&E I had. Someone was just scratching. This is lichen simplex chronicus changes. So someone, they have the serum crust over the epidermis, and blah, 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 scratching, scratching, scratching. So someone's scratching this. In um, pemphigus, like the slide I showed you before, you should have acantholysis, where there's breaking apart of the keratinocytes in the epidermis. I don't see that in this. All I see is someone scratching. But the direct immunofluorescence, remember I showed you before, there's that pattern where it's this intercellular web-like pattern around the keratinocytes. That fits for pemphigus, but this didn't fit. So now I have this, this, it doesn't correlate. My histology slide doesn't correlate with my direct immunofluorescence slide. So we have this disparate correlation. So, so I said my report, I said, there's this positivity there that looks like pemphigus, but then I don't see the changes for pemphigus in the H&E. So I talked to um, the clinician on the phone and he did a biopsy 10 days later. Repeat biopsy, there's two biopsies, did two biopsies for me, and still, someone was scratching. So I just didn't, I didn't see any changes. Actually, this one isn't scratched. This is an untouched lesion because the, the stratum corneum's fine, and there's, this is, this is actually, looks untouched, but I didn't see the features of pemphigus still on these two biopsies. So a month later, he biopsies two more, and there it is. There's that acantholysis that we're looking for to see in pemphigus. So he, his clinical suspicion was still very high, even though he kept getting, he had two biopsies for me that I was like, reactive changes, you know? I mean, he didn't have anything that was good for pemphigus. His suspicion was high and he kept at it and the, and the third time he got it. So again, if it, you know, if you have a suspicion and it just isn't correlating with what we're telling you, you may need to keep going after it. And this is probably my most important slide, I think. Just communication and a good relationship between you and your dermatopathologist is really most important. If you feel comfortable calling and discussing cases, that's really the, the best for your patients because working through um, these difficult cases as a team really will help get you the best diagnosis. So always call us whenever there's a question and always challenge a diagnosis that contradicts your clinical impression, regardless, you know, you may go like, oh, I have this world famous dermatopathologist and, you know, he said it was blah and, you know, but I thought it was blah. Well, you know, call. I mean, anything that contradicts because, you know, we're human and we make mistakes too. So if, if we make a mistake and you call us and we review the case and say, hey, you're right, you know, there is squamous cell carcinoma in situ there or whatever, I mean, if that ever happens, I am happy to, you know, correct my diagnosis. I am never offended by that. I would rather you guys call me when it doesn't make sense and go, hey, you know, I really thought that this was Bowen's and, you know, you thought it was a Seb. 
And, you know, if I were to look at it and be like, oh, man, I missed this little area over here, and you're right, it's Bowen's, I'm, like, thanking you profusely because you saved my butt because now you've saved me from making an incorrect diagnosis. So don't be afraid to call whenever it, it doesn't make sense. And so the last slide is just the few tips. And the first one, if you can send your cases to dermatopathologists, you know, whoever it is and whoever you feel comfortable with, that's the best thing. And I'm not making, a, you know, a a bash on general pathologists, but you know, a dermatopathologist does this all day, every day, and that's all they do. And like, you know, it's just so you're just going to see more, and you're gonna, your experience is going to be more. And so, if you can, if there's a dermatopathologist in your area, you know, try to send it to them. And then, adequate history, more is better. Adequate size biopsy, more is better and then do the right type of biopsy for the appropriate clinical differential, and when it doesn't make sense, give us a call.